The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. For the past week, I've been down here in Johannesburg, participating in the Photographic Society of South Africa's latest Congress, which focused on street photography. It's my first trip to the continent of Africa, and it's been an amazing experience, both creatively and personally. I can't say enough about the many people that I've met and the amazing things that they've shared with me. Special thanks to Francois and Petra for playing host to me while I've been here. One of the people that I met and had the pleasure to interview is Anton Bozeman, a photographer who is as much in love with Johannesburg as I am with Los Angeles. During his presentation, but also during the photo walk that he led, I was impressed not only by his attention to the subtlety of light and scene, but also his knowledge of the city's history. It made my experience of it all the more richer. Through him and the others that I've met here, I've been able to discover Johannesburg in a very personal and intimate way. But thanks for sitting down and, and talking with Only me. Only a pleasure. Greatest pleasure. Um, it's a privilege, actually. To I've be got honest. to enjoy so much of you. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, Likewise. Yeah, because the presentation was, was fantastic. And then having the opportunity to go out and shoot with you was even more so. Appreciate that. And yesterday was, was magical, I think. Wasn't it? We had such a fantastic time. The city was buzzing. And, and the nice thing was, you know, we, I took you guys to a part of the city that people would avoid. They're terrified to go there. Yeah. But what they don't realize is just a, it's a working district. People go there to earn a living. They're not there to commit crime. Mm-hmm. And if you go there, you get to experience the culture of the city. But the, the, as you saw yesterday, the mix of cultures, yeah. which is quite amazing. And uh, obviously, fantastic city life, different to any other city, you know, where I find like when I was in New York, people always in a rush. They, right. they, they, they walk fast and they're moving and they're going places. Here people walk and they'll stop and they'll kind of pick their nose or mm-hmm. take out a suite and have a suite. Uh, they're not in so much of a rush. You know, it's, it's, uh, if you look at what a lot of the people do that work in the city, they, they, they live quite far away from the city as well. So right. for them, they've got certain times they need to get to where they catch their transport, whether it's a taxi or getting on a train. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they finish work, let's say, at three o'clock in the afternoon because they've been there since six in the morning and they can only catch the next train at five o'clock. Right. So they use that time to basically have a bit of quiet time, have a snack, walk around, just get away from work day, get away from having to go back to home. For some people, that's pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you'll find it's a place where people, a, a lot of people just go to unwind. Yeah, and what, I, what was fascinating about Gandhi Square which is for people who are not familiar with uh, Johannesburg, it's sort of a central hub for all this public transportation and these buses. Absolutely, yeah. And what was really interesting for me was to see the social interactions that were happening revolving that. Yes. Um, in Los Angeles, 
you'll see areas where people are connecting to get from point A to point B and maybe like transfer centers. Right. But there wasn't the level of social interaction that right. I saw yesterday because it was people who may be only familiar with each other as a result of this time. Absolutely. And because they share the same language, they may be from the same tribe or the same cultures, whatever. Yes. Um, they're sitting down there and socializing and engaging with each other. But and, and back in the States, you don't see that. You may see somebody you see uh, as part of your daily commute all the time. So they become familiar with each other. Familiar, but do they, yeah. they don't talk to each other. Oh, really? No, you just you'll just see the, the same Quite faces. Surprising. Yeah, because I mean, everyone is sort of very insular. So here with us, when you when you get that, if 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 you and I had to commute for two three weeks solidly, and we, we end up commuting for a year mm-hmm. on end, we'd become great friends. That's how we operate in this country. You get to know that person, and eventually you start socializing with them, and you do things outside of that normal routine. And uh, I think it's uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's a South African culture, but we are very friendly people and accepting and uh, love to socialize. Yeah. Well, that's been evident since I've been here. <laughs> so you've enjoyed that. <laughs> and all without the having a, 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 it being a sort of massage with a lot of beer. Yes. You know? yeah, we love our beer. Oh, yes. If you had more time, we'd, uh, we'd be doing what we'd call a couple of beer cruises. Um, oh, that sounds the, dangerous. The, the craft beer industry has taken a, quite a, a sharp upturn okay. in South Africa. There's a lot of guys that are brewing uh, uh, microbreweries bring their own beers and it's, it's quite exciting it's very nice to have that and then you have uh, a good friend of mine is a, a Belgian citizen but he's uh, the head of the Chefs Association of South Africa mm-hmm. and he, he then is linked with the guys who import all the Belgian beers so he hosts dinners where people can go and, and, and just sample good food and, and beer along with that as opposed to wine Okay. so we love our beer in this country all right, well, we got to make a plan to do that before I go we should definitely one of the things that really resonated with me was your love for the city. And as you were talking about it, it was really interesting because there's a certain perception that I've picked up on during the short time of being here in terms of, as you said, downtown Joburg as being a place that's best avoided. You don't go down there alone, especially yes. with the camera, so on and so forth. And I completely understood that yeah. because when I started shooting in downtown Los Angeles, that was the very same perception. I started shooting down there over 25 years ago. Wow. And it was a place that you didn't go down to if you didn't have to. Oh, really? Much less with a camera, right? Some people worked down there, but yeah. it was like, get in, get out. Oh, wow. Uh, there was a large population, mostly of Latino immigrants. Yes. For whom that was a commercial center, right? social center. It wasn't too far for what's known as Skid Row, which is at the time was the location of, of, of a large, of the homeless population. Okay. But in recent years, that homelessness has sort of spread out throughout Los Angeles. But during that time, people did not go down there. And there was this, there was a real negative perception of the area, which I didn't, I didn't necessarily embrace because I had grown up in and around that area. So I had a, I had had a very different experience coming up in that area. Okay. Uh, for me, I had I, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was fun. Yes, uh, it was interesting. Uh, unlike other parts of Los Angeles that had become, to my eye, very clean but sterile, over commercialized. Yeah, mm. there was personality there. There was amazing light. So as a photographer. I went there as sort of a direct response to that because yes. I wanted to show that, no, it's 
it's it's more than what you think it is. Yep. It's a place that's worthy of exploring for its own beauty, its own contrast, its own dichotomies. Yes. And as you were made doing your presentations and showing your photographs and taking us around, he said, uh, he's like, oh, he's he's my brother from another mother. <laughs> you know? It's fantastic, yeah. So I, I've noticed we have very much the same uh, feeling and the same ideas of, of, of how we like to shoot and what we, we like to portray, show people. Mm-hmm. But but tell me about that, yeah. that, that, that relationship. I mean, you're... Most definitely. Um, I didn't grow up in the city. It's, uh, it wasn't the kind of place that uh, you grew up in when you lived in South Africa because as a youngster in the early 70s and, and 80s, the center of the city was, was obviously exactly that. It was a central business district and uh, mostly owned by banks. So a lot of people would do exactly that, travel into the city, go, go about their working day, get on the bus and leave exactly what you said about LA just now. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we... We didn't have quite the crime element in the city um, that that you're talking about to that extent. But there were some issues around. Obviously, there were places in the city that you completely avoided that you didn't go to. One of those places you completely avoid today is Hillbrow. And that was one of the places that we frequented quite heavily. Mm-hmm. And, you you know, when I did the presentation yesterday, I obviously showed the iconic landmarks that, that, that form the skyline. Yeah. So one of those is a building called Ponty. It's that big round building that you see from all, all over, mm-hmm. wherever you're driving. And that was built as a, an apartment block or what we call in South Africa a block of flats. I, qu- I quite hate that term, but it's a block of flats. And uh, it was built uh, to, to, to get the more upper crust, more wealthy individuals to come and actually get apartments there, live in the city, and invest their money uh, into the city and into that part of the city. And as a result of that, we've got suburbs surrounding that uh, that, that have become very affluent, uh, areas like uh, Houghton, um, to a lesser extent, but a little bit further away, Santon. Mm-hmm. So we've got all this wealth just on the outskirts of which was an up-and-coming, vibey, enjoyable place. I remember buying a pair of shoes there. I was, I was big into the into the, the, the punk and gothic scene right. in, in the late 80s. I loved it and obviously dressed the pot. So I was looking for a pair of winkle pickers, and I remember getting on the bus from where I lived. I lived in an area called Sunny Ridge, which was probably about – uh, we're talking kilometers, we're talking about 25 kilometers away from the center of Hillbrow. So I would get on a bus at six o'clock in the morning and go down to a town called Jimiston, catch a train into the city and eventually get here by nine o'clock and go into Hillbrow by foot, which is quite a quite a way away. But the nice thing was I went to a place called Hillbrow Record Bar. Mm-hmm. So I'd first go and buy a couple of records, always. I've still got one of the uh, Sisters of Mercy albums that I bought back in the oh, day yeah. that I spin quite often. I actually went and hunted a, a couple of Jamaicans down that uh, handmade winkle pickers. What are winkle pickers? So winkle pickers are what we would, what some would call fairy shoes. They're those pointy shoes that that extend very long to the front and almost mm-hmm. curl up. Uh, so very oh. similar to what Peter Pan would would right. wear, okay. I would guess. And, and they were high fashion back in the day. And uh, I desperately wanted a pair of those, and I, I made a way to to get them. You know, I don't and, think that made it to the states. Yeah, I, I don't think, think so. I don't remember those. <laughs> and then you know, I recall doing trips like that, coming into the city to buy a pair of Doctor Martens. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, for for a boy that that grew up in 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 the the outskirts, the the, the suburbs as we call them, the the outskirts of the city. Mm-hmm. I was always fascinated by the place, and you you look at the buildings and you think it's 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 Sodom and Gomorrah because mm-hmm. you get told it's a wild place. And as I said in the presentation, my mom said to me when I was a kid, she said if we had to drop you off there, 
you'd get you'd go missing. We'd never find you. Mm-hmm. That place is is is, is like a a complete uh, maze. You're just going to get completely lost. And when I eventually had my own feet and I could do my own thing, you know, there, there were the times that we would come into the city and we'd look at the Christmas lights. So, you know, back in the day, they, they would scatter the streets. I mean, all the street lamps had Christmas lights and you would drive it. It was like a show. And people would come from far and wide. People would come from places like the Free State to come into Johannesburg. We're talking three, 400 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. Drive to Johannesburg to come and look at the, the Christmas lights in the city. It was a very up and coming place. We had places like Ponty, which was for the more well-heeled. And right next to it, you've got a place we call the Talcom Tower, which is one of the other iconic uh, landmarks that you see. It's uh, that long extension that's got the the slightly thicker rounding at the top. Um, that's used for broadcasting us and, and, and any form of communication as such. And they had a revolving restaurant in there. So, you know, when, when somebody got a bonus, uh, they got treated mm. to their restaurant by their parents or whoever took them there. So for us, the city became a place of, uh, it was vibey, it was nice, but you, you didn't want to spend time there. You went there to experience certain things. And for me as a kid, I completely fell in love with that. Um, I, I just, I love nature, don't get me wrong. I absolutely adore nature and I, I, could, I could live in the mountains for, for, for years on end, not worry about anybody. But there's just something about city life and connecting with people, even if I don't communicate with them. When somebody walks past me, I connect with them. It, it's amazing. I look mm-hmm. at them and immediately I start thinking about what they're doing, where they are, who, who they are. And if they make the eye contact, even better. And if I then can strike up a conversation with them, oh, I'm in heaven. I absolutely love it. I just want to find out what they're doing. Who are they? What are they doing in the city? So as a kid, you know, you'd come in and you never made that connection. And when I found my feet, I came into the city on a very regular basis. I was in the city about three, four days of the week and eventually made it to university where I studied at at Wits University, so in the city itself. So I found myself traveling back and forth day in, day out into Johannesburg to Gandhi Square, which was mm-hmm. the old, we, we knew in the old days as Van der Bale Square, which was also the hub of, of, of uh, um, uh, traveling for people. You know, it was, it's where you, you got your transport to get your certain destinations. And through that, I, I started getting my own mind. You know, you don't have your parents, you don't have the family, you don't have anyone else giving you negative thoughts about the city. Mm-hmm. And you're walking around, you start mixing with people, you start experiencing different cultures. But for me, the biggest revelation was when I found out what type of architecture this place had. It has got such a massive variation of architecture. Um, you've got buildings, a building built in 1908, and you've got a building built in 1938, both standing back to back, sharing one city block. Um, it's, it's, for me, that's just absolutely amazing. And, and these buildings are, are still standing today, and they're intact. Uh, and they're looking as, uh, almost as good as they looked all those years back. And I started looking at this and I thought to myself, it's an amazing place. To a point where I actually found friends that lived in the city and I would just squat with them for a week. Say, can I come and stay at your place for a week? I don't feel like going back to where I'm living. Ah, no problem. And I end up spending a lot of time in the city going to clubs. And I tell you what, Ibarionics, that is completely the thing that, that, that tilted my passion for this place even more. It, it kind of crept into my heart. I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the streets. I just fell in love with the vibe of the city and with the infrastructure. You know, coming from, from, from an engineering background and what I studied, infrastructure became a very vital aspect of my thinking. You know, I started looking at everything with a, I hate to say it, but a bit of an engineering mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm inquisitive and I, I want to know how every single thing operates. 
and uh, I started looking at the city infrastructure. And um, we're in a coffee house, so uh, <laughs> we're going to have momentary background interruptions. But uh, there we go again. Too bad. They're grinding a lot of beans. Which <laughs> <laughs> good. The coffee here has been amazing. Absolutely. So I am. I'm not complaining that much. So my first year as a, um, an apprentice, um, obviously I I worked as an apprentice. I ended up working in the city, mm-hmm. and I ended up doing stuff that your day-to-day person would not see, being taken into underground tunnels, being taken into buildings and having access into parts of buildings that people would never see. And, and I just grew fonder and fonder of the place. And uh, it, was, it was towards the uh, mid-90s almost, uh, early to mid-90s, yeah. that the crime element in Johannesburg really got bad. And people started avoiding the place. Um, people just started fading away. And for myself, it was, it was at that point time of my life where I had now met somebody, I had gotten married, I was looking at doing something else and I was taken out to, to Midrand, which Midrand back in the day when, when I moved there, it was seen as a farmland. You know, you lived out in the country and it really was countryside. And that's probably about 30 kilometers from Johannesburg. And I, com- I completely forgot about Joburg. I'm, a, I'm a quite an avid cyclist. And a lot of my friends would say to me, listen, we're keen on road cycling, but where, where should we go? And the only place I knew was Johannesburg. And I started bringing people into Joburg on bicycle, riding bicycles through the city. They were horrified, but they were also as excited as, as, you, as you can imagine. So they'd come in here thinking they're going to get murdered, but they would walk away completely thrilled, loving what they saw, loving the graffiti, loving the people, loving the buildings. And... Um, I decided to make Joburg a project of mine and I call it my Josie project, which is going to be an ongoing project. And I've got currently, I've got about eight years of content that I've taken off the city. And if I look back on those files and from where it started to where I am now, it's amazing to me how the place has evolved. So I've also got the sense of excitement as to, I know where it was in the early days. I know where it ended up when the crime element stepped in. Mm -hmm. I know where it is now, but how exciting is it going to get moving forward? Yeah. So I'm super excited about that. Is this what jump-started your photography? Or what was happening photographically before this project? So for me, out of school, it was spending time in a darkroom. I loved the developing side of it, and I, was, I had a camera shoved into my hand to do real estate photography, which I absolutely hated. I did not like it, oh, so right, yeah. I never, ever wanted to touch a camera after that again. And uh, I went out to San Francisco in 2004, and I bought myself a little Panasonic Lumix. I thought, you know what, I'm going to take photographs while I'm there because it's, it's a, a California, and especially San Francisco, was a dream destination for me. You know, as I think if you grow up in certain places, you, you dream of what you could do in other places. Right, right. So a big dream of mine was to, to ride over the Golden Gate Bridge on a bicycle. I didn't even know it was possible till I got there. And I did exactly that. And I experienced San Francisco for two weeks, took photos in the place, came back, and what I saw excited me because how am I going to show my wife, my friends, what I experienced? And I suddenly had this in picture, mm-hmm. and I realized I was making memories. And that's when I decided, you know what, it's time for me to take this a little bit more serious, start taking photographs, and... um just eventually bought myself a, uh, it was a Canon 450. Okay, yeah. Or Canon 400, it could have been even. And, uh, 
yeah, I took some horrendous photos for the first six months. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely shocking stuff. And uh, I never went on a course. Ended up buying a lot of magazines and, and all the technical jargon just straight over my head. And I just started studying the pictures in the, uh, in the magazines. Yeah. And um, I think it was after about the first six, seven months, I figured out the the, the magical triangle, you know, which is the aperture, shutter speed, and uh, your, 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 you know, your, your, your ISO. Mm-hmm. And I started playing with those. And, and from there, found my genre, found my niche, and um, it's, it's become a, a simple thing for me to do. You, know, you were talking about the uh, architecture earlier. And yes. I, and I got to see it firsthand yesterday. And it was really amazing to see basically decades and ages and architectural styles different. Yeah. All in close proximity to each so, other. And that was, it was kind of like out of a science fiction novel or something <laughs> or movie where the aliens take different parts of cities all over the world and then they just plant them in the desert you know, amazing, together. Yeah. And you're just looking at this sort of mishmash yeah. of, of different styles and designs and epochs. And, and on top of that, this quality of light that sort of, bouncing all over the yes. place and coming down in shafts and it was like it was just a photographer's dream I think um, I think my logic behind it you know if, if I have to give my sort of reason as to why I think this has happened we oh, you know we're a third world country that we, we don't really have that thought of development so we, we, we end up copying a lot of things we're a lot of knowledgeable people but we end up copying what the rest of the world does mm-hmm. you know so we talk fidget spinners. When the fidget spinners became popular all over the world, we, it probably became popular here a month later. So by the time everyone else put them down, we all got excited about them. So it was a bit late to the party. And I think with city development and architecture, it's very much what happened back in those days. So if we go to the very late 1800s, um, 1700s when buildings were built in, and even the early 1900s when we had the likes of Sir Herbert Baker that came in and designed buildings, some of these still standing, but on the outers, outskirts of the city in suburbs, I mean, there's the stone church in Boxburg that you would go absolutely crazy for. Mm. And it stands in the middle of nowhere. And it's ex- ex- exceptionally well kept. But I think when, 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 City development happened and uh, future development. You know, we I showed you the, the, the five different years of Art Deco in one street yesterday. Right, yeah. Whereas I think in cities like New York and, and other places, if they built that style of Art Deco, that whole condensed four city, five city blocks became exactly that because they knew what they were doing at mm-hmm. the time. I don't think the guys here really knew what they were doing. They would develop something then go on about their business and decide, okay, you know, we got this, let's let's do another city block and let's develop some buildings over here. And that came sort of two, three years later when the old architectural changes had already started happening. You know, and, and that's where I, I think in one city block you find such a mix of architectural designs because the guys who built this basically looked at what the era was, going, okay, well, this has been standing here for the last 15 years. We're not going to, occupy the other half of the city block and build a building there Mm -hmm. but in 15 years we've gone from this type of architecture gothic style of architecture almost down to the first of the art deco years of architecture you know and i think that is really what's happened so as we walked down the the streets yesterday you had architecture running all the way from uh, predominantly from the 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 1950s uh, a little bit of the 1970s quite a lot of the 1980s when a lot of development happened in the city and plenty in the 1930s 
and then early 1900s. There seem to be years that have kind of gone missing in yeah. between. You know, when you, you mentioned when you first picked up a camera, you uh, were taking a lot of bad pictures. Uh, and then <laughs> you, you, you got better. But can you talk to me about the, the moment when you started looking at your photographs? And it wasn't just that they were technically bad. Yeah. It was just the issue that they were technically they were good, but they weren't capturing what you felt about the city. Yes. And how did you transition from that to what you're creating now? It's a it's an interesting question with a very simple answer, really. And it's going to sound very boring to some people, but I actually had no clue of the rules of composition. So I love art. I absolutely love art. And I'm a terrible, terrible artist. My, when I try and paint something, it just looks horrible. Mm-hmm. I cannot draw a person's face without them looking like a stick figure. <laughs> but I can appreciate art. Absolutely love it. My daughter is an incredible artist. You know, I always felt that I, I was creative to some sort of extent. When I picked up a camera for the first time, we t- we, besides the fact that things were overexposed and underexposed and it just looked horrible and was out of focus, one thing I realized is I actually had no clue of the rules of composition because it always bugged me that my photos, as they started looking better, they got more in focus and they, they, I would get the exposure right. But there was just nothing that excited me about my own pictures. And I eventually thought to myself, what could it be? And I, I, I went on the internet and I thought, I just Googled what makes a good photo. And the thing that popped out at me the whole time was composition, composition, composition. And I started studying the rules of composition and what they're about. And I started applying them to my own photos. Many people would say, but that's, that is such a generic, simple thing to do. Do you really want to be a copycat of someone else? But what I learned in the process was that if you understand those rules, you can create good photographs. If you understand what a leading line is, you can create a good photograph. If you understand perspective, things running into a depth of field, you can create a good photograph. So for me, I've applied first off composition first. So now when I look at an image, I found my own style, my own unique style, and I apply what what I like to see in, in a photograph. But I've had to understand basic rules of photography first before I could apply them and then eventually create my own style out of that. Mm-hmm. So at, at at, at, at many of the photographs, some of the photographs I make, many of them, I completely break those rules. But it's also become a thing of feeling for me. So if it feels good to me when I'm looking through the viewfinder, I know that I've got something special that's going to happen. Did your awareness of light come along the same time or that, that before or after? You know, when, when it came to people, I had absolutely no clue what to do. Mm-hmm. But when it came to landscape or architecture, I... I grasped it immediately. I just knew what I was looking for. And I would say within the first month of picking up a camera, deciding I'm going to do the type of photography that I do, I quickly realized that the golden hour is where I want to be because that is when I'm getting the light fall, I'm getting the shadows. So the awareness of light came for me pretty easy. It was was, uh, playing with the light that became a whole different ballgame for me. So how do I... How do I cheat the light in essence? So we know the light's falling like we saw in the city yesterday and the one image I showed you just now. We know the light's falling on the city, but how am I going to use some of that light and expose that onto a building and keep another building fairly dark to create an element of wonder, but then still lead you straight down the scene so you've got a bit of a destination? And it's almost like when I create the image – it's almost like you're walking or driving in the car and at that moment the light's falling in the city but I want you to experience that moment. 
So my understanding of light was there, but it was just how to apply that light and bring it into the image. And that became a waiting game because the first thing I did, I think as most people do, you get somewhere, you get excited, you see the scene, grab your camera, you immediately want to take a couple of photos and you never get what you want. So now I look for the light, I see what the light's doing, but I know that if I wait two, three, four, five minutes, something really magical is going to happen. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's playing that waiting game. Yeah. I mean, whether you're doing what you're doing, whether I, what I'm doing, yeah. it really is willing to be patient and wait it out and risk that you may miss it completely. Absolutely. But I think the embracing of that is, is what opens those magical moments, those, those, those surprises that you could even, couldn't even anticipate when you initially stopped at a scene and think yes. there might be something here. Yeah. A lot of people say to me, how do you do that? Do you do a lot of editing? There's a lot of Photoshop. You know, I don't know if I could say this on air, but you can't polish a turd. <laughs> it's impossible to do that. So you got, you got to kind of capture what you're looking for right there and then. When, when you walk away there, you've got to know that you've got 90% of what you're going to try and create. The end result has to be there. Yeah. And often when I shoot now, I shoot with the editing process in mind. I know exactly what I want to do. So I understand my equipment and I know what the dynamic range of my equipment is. You know, with with the gear that I'm using, the Fuji equipment, I know that I can really lift the shadows. So if I'm looking for detail in clouds, I, I, I use a lot of cloud movement or clouds to create that third perspective in an image. So if I look for, for detail in the clouds, I know that it's not that easy to pull back the highlights. So I tend to underexpose the image, but I know exactly by how many stops I can underexpose. Right because I know that I can lift the shadows by that much when I do go sit down in Lightroom and start editing the image. You know, when people talk about camera stuff and I see reviews, they talk about, it has a very wide dynamic range and they talk about it in terms of the abstract. Yes. And looking at your photographs is like, you know, you when people start talking about dynamic range in that respect, I say, you really want to understand why it makes a difference? Take a look at Anton's photographs. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously, does, yeah. because your photographs would not have been possible in the days of film or even Absolutely. the early days of digital. Totally uh, impossible. You really reveal why this technology has sort of really opened it up. Yes. And the remarkable stuff is that you're doing it without using HDR software, that you're just using the dynamic range of the camera and in Lightroom to create your, your photographs, which I Absolutely. think surprised a lot of people because they they... Uh, when they asked you that question, I'm sure that a lot of people in the audience are very surprised that, that was that that's how you were working. You know, I've tried the HDR approach where you take five images, mm -hmm. you don't get the same result. Then you try the HDR software and it starts looking like a, a cartoon or like right. a little uh, hand-drawn picture. And I thought to myself, there's got to be more to this. You know, and, and I realized it's, it's actually us. If we need all these programs, if we need to overlay images to show the shadows and the highlights, now we know that the eye has a dynamic range next to none. No camera can actually compete with the eye. But if we just spend our time, and so what I, what I would do, I would take different exposure readings, meter readings. I would expose for the sky, see what the light meter is doing, mm -hmm. go down to the mids, go down to the shadows, and then work out my own meter reading according to that, understanding how much of the shadows I can lift or pull back on the highlights. If it's a nighttime shot, maybe I could, I'd completely overexpose because I know I can pull back on that. Mm -hmm. you know, you're 100% right. It's, it's understanding what the dynamic range is. But w once you do a single image like that, you've got so much to play with. Obviously, take it in raw. But 
people think, oh, you're boosting those colors like crazy. If you take the image properly, you're getting all the colors out of the scene that you're supposed to get. And with me having doing the long exposures, you can well imagine, I can't stand there and expose three minutes, do another shot of three minutes and another shot of three minutes, and then try and create essentially an HDR out of that. Mm-hmm. So I think HDR is very good, but I think it also gets overused by a lot of people because they they, they, they get excited. They want, they want those images to pop. Right but they're too lazy to utilize the equipment to actually get that right in camera. You can get that so right in camera. And, and the, the understanding of it is completely wrong as well. You know, they don't realize that, so why are you taking three different exposures? And they can't tell you why. They don't realize we're taking one for the sky, we're taking one for the mids, we're taking one for the, 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 the foreground. Mm-hmm. And when we overlay them into an HDR program or Lightroom has got that HDR function there, you, you're basically creating layers of what you've taken. And often I find it just doesn't give you the same result that you get from one image. It's my own pickiness, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Definitely, composition, the key. You get the composition right, you could mess up a whole bunch of other things and still have a picture that's going to excite people. And then once you expose properly and you want to show certain details, the world's your oyster. Yeah. You can do so much. What was interesting about the colors of your image and when you were describing the process, I kind of realized that you reveal colors that we can't possibly see with a human eye. And by that I mean that if you have a spot in a scene that's in color and it gets illuminated by direct sunlight, it looks very different when when it's in shade. The hue, Mm, mm. the density of that color is completely different. When you're doing a long time exposure, especially when the light is changing yes that color is changing absolutely within that time frame so there's no real quote-unquote true color to that thing 100 percent, absolutely so tell me about your awareness of how color changes as a result of doing the long time exposures and how you sort of sort of played with that in terms of how you interpreted the scene because Most you're definitely. not doing a literal for, for landscape photography it's, it's pretty simple so it'll give you the, the different colors that you get in the sky if it's a coastal scene obviously you'll get the mix of colors falling over the water as well so you're not going to get just an orange glow in the water you could get orange with a bit of pink and even a bit of purple reflecting on the water because you're getting that and we're talking five minute exposures here long long exposures when you do it in in city type photography or buildings or, or, or urban photography and you do long exposures there it becomes so much more magical because you're getting the light change in the sky but you're also getting the light change on the buildings so you can well imagine if you're standing in the city like we did yesterday at Gandhi Square with those tall buildings mm-hmm. um, the, the one building in particular if we're looking towards the uh, the east if the sun falls just perfectly on that it becomes this gold nugget it is perfectly gold but if you take a five-minute exposure there, you suddenly get all sorts of contrasts and colors in that particular building. Do it as a one image shot, you've got this gold nugget. Mm-hmm. But do it over four or five minutes, you start getting gold to a bit of orange to a little bit of yellow and then going into darker colors down towards the bottom because now starting to pick up shadows. So you get a building that almost looks like you've gone and taken a brush and just slapped it with a whole bunch of colors. And this is the kind of thing that you can't do afterwards right. in, in any post-processing. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's interesting, even though we have same uh, similar sensitivities, Yes, I'm factoring things at 
200th of a second, 250th of a second. And you're doing it over minutes, but we're both responding to the same thing. Because that shot that you just showed me, yeah. as I was making my shot in the corner, I noticed that corridor. Yes. And then a beat second, I see you making your photograph. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about what's what surprises you in terms of how people respond to your photographs, especially people who are from Joburg? It, uh, it excites me. At times it... Uh, you know, I get quite shy, so when when people do give praise, I I become a little bit uh, flabbergasted. Um, but it's exciting for me because I don't create for people; I create for myself. Mm-hmm. But it's exciting to see that I can excite others. They look at the images and they get very happy about what they're seeing. And even more exciting when they look at the image, whether it being a print or on a phone or on an iPad, wherever they're looking at it, and they start pointing and they go, I used to work there. Yeah. yeah. I love it. You know, and you can see them becoming very nostalgic. I've, I've shown people photos of Johannesburg where they start crying and I'm thinking, gosh, it's not that beautiful, you know, and they, they start telling you the story as to what they are seeing in the scene and you realize they work there, they spend time there and they tell you that what their, their life was like when they were there, what a hard mm-hmm. time they were having or, or, or they were getting married or they, they just had their first child when, when they worked there. For me, that's exciting. The th- I think the thing that excites me the most is that I've always wanted to be an artist because I, I won an art contest when I was in primary school. Um, it was a, a charcoal black and white picture of trees that I saw in a forest on a school camp and I could draw. I drew that. My mom's got the picture. She's very proud of it. And I still can't believe it's mine. But I've never been able to replicate the fact that I can draw things. And I love, I love the arts and the cultures. I love music. I absolutely, music is my life. And I love art. And I love people that are creative. Absolutely creative. I mean, I saw this guy on YouTube last night, um, some Australian kid that plays the piano. He's never been taught. 16-year-old kid, Kush, I think they call him. It's phenomenal. I was in tears to think that, that that kind of creativity can come from man, mm. but from his heart. It wasn't taught. It comes from his heart. So, so we are unique as human beings. So I've always wanted to, to, to be the kind of person that shows that, listen, I, I can be creative and I can excite you about things. And photography became that, that avenue for me. Um, and, and, and that's why it's, it's now gotten to a point where I shoot for myself, but I also shoot thinking, I wonder what people would want to see in the scene Mm -hmm. and what's going to get them excited about what they're seeing so it's a bashful thing for me when they when they get excited about it but when they start talking about what excites them about the image that's when i get really really excited you mentioned that you're an avid cyclist yes as compared to driving the way you experience your your environment is completely different totally you know there you can you can turn off to a great degree when you're in a car uh, you really can't do that on a bicycle, one, for safety reasons. Sure. But I think it opens you up to your space in, in oh, a way. completely. And tell me about how that experience, that, that the way you experience the world visually on your bike influences what you do when you're behind the camera. I think that has got a big impact on the way I, I compose for a scene. Because when I do cycle, whether it's on the mountain bike, off-road, in nature, or I come into Joburg on the road bike, I see, I see a photograph. Everywhere I go, I see a photograph. I, think, I can make a photo of this. I can make a photo of that. Mm. It's quite difficult to just stop for every single thing and photograph. You'll never get home. I think it actually it's a massive contributing factor that 
in my life that's helped me to compose the way I do and see things the certain way that I do see them. Because, you know, I'm moving along on the bike. I'm not in a car looking straight ahead of me. I'm not looking at, of course, I'm looking at traffic lights, but I'm not concentrating purely on that. I'm on the bike. My head's turning around. I'm looking and I'm looking at every single thing that I see. And I start seeing perspectives. I start seeing compositional elements in, 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 in where, wherever I am. And um, most importantly, the light, because I'm, I'm riding and I'm always up early in the morning. I'm out at five in the morning. So I ride from dark to sunrise. And then once the sun is up fully at about seven o'clock, that's when I get home. So when I cycle, I also get to understand what the light's doing at certain times of the day. So it's become very easy for me. Like when I took you guys out yesterday, I knew exactly if we get there this time, if we get there that time, this is the kind of light that we're going to have and this people should get some shots. Thank you for that. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> and uh, I think I think it's a massive contributing factor um, in my life. And, um, you know, if you look at some of the most successful street photographers out there, I mean, we talk about Henry Cartier-Bresson, the man walked by foot. And I think right. the fact that he was on foot helped him to see things that you would not normally see if you're in the hustle and bustle of uh, city life and, and getting into transportation where you don't see these things. You have a family? I a do. Beautiful young girl. I've got a daughter, a son. And so on, a son. A son. Uh, daughter is 18. My son is 13 and I've got a wife, 24 years. We've been married. Hey, I, I got one. I'm, I'm one up on you. You're one married. up on me. <laughs> I'm um, catching you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but tell me about raising a family, having a business, and then finding time for your photography. It's not as difficult as what people would think um, because if you have a passion for things, you make time to do those things. So the only thing that really suffers is my sleep. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my, my, my theory on that is that uh, when I'm in retirement, I've got enough time to sleep. Yeah. And hopefully not. I'd be on a, want to be walking around with a camera. But I make time to do these things. So I'm up early in the morning. I get to bed on a good night, I get to bed at about 11 o'clock and I'm up at four o'clock in the morning and I'd get on the bike, go and cycle, get back home, love the family a little bit, um, get off to work and then see the family back in the evening again. So I make time for that and um, they, they love what I do. They're my biggest supporters, which I think is the most important aspect that one should have. Mm-hmm. They absolutely adore what I do. So if, if I say to them, guys, why don't we go into town for lunch today? They're there like a bear. They love it. They all can't wait to get in the car, go into town. They get a little bit annoyed when I do the long exposures, like my son would say to me, uh, Dad, your camera always takes so long to make a photograph. I'd say to him, but I'm doing a long exposure. Use a phone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> use it. It'll be quicker. <laughs> but uh, they love it. You know, so I think having a supportive family makes it very easy. And I think having a family is what balances that for me because if I didn't have a family I'd probably just go completely ape mm. with a camera you'd probably never see me I would just want to capture scenes and capture yeah. capture city life and, and capture nature as much as I could well my last question that I ask each guest I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own it can be anyone it can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so who would that photographer be and why uh, any any photographer. Any photographer. It's a, it's quite a difficult one for me because um, I don't want this to sound vain, but I don't really admire too many photographers. It's it's a funny thing for me. So I'm a, absolutely a big fan of uh, Ansel Adams, 
Um, he's, he's been a big inspiration to me. I absolutely adore and love what he does. I would have to say a photographer whose stuff I really, really, really enjoy is uh, Scott Kelby. Oh, Scott, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. uh, I take a lot of inspiration from there as well and often find myself just throwing his name into Google and uh, looking at his images. You know, sitting there like a little groupie, and uh, <laughs> and uh, obviously y- your stuff I've uh, followed uh, quite a bit um, over the years. Uh, uh, loving city life, I caught onto your stuff at one time. I didn't even know you were on in- uh, Instagram, oh, okay. so that's that's a nice find well, for me. You. And um, that's why I was quite bashful when I met you on Sunday. Uh, I become quite uh, quite shy when I'm around people that I <laughs> that I admire, but there's very few that I would that I would sort of idolize and put on a pedestal. Um, but definitely, I, I love the work of Scott Calby. But uh, for me, there's been no greater inspiration than Ansel Adams. Yeah, it's great. Thank you, man. You, Thank you so much. All, thank you for, for making time for the interview. Thank you for showing me your Joburg. Only a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to uh, uh, a friendship for a very long time. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thanks again for joining us and to Anton for sharing his story. To find out more about Anton and his work, follow him on Instagram at AntBozeman. That's A-N-T-B-O-S-M-A-N. And thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. Thanks to Dylan Haskin from South Africa and Enrique Wiesel from Canada for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find the link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on The Candid Frame website or the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.